to a new year at Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. It's January 18th, 2018, and I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Our guest today is Dwight Burgles, who's a professor of neuroscience at the Solomon H. Snyder Department of Neuroscience, and um, he's also the associate director of the Johns Hopkins Kavli Neuroscience Discovery Institute, which are both at Johns Hopkins. Hi. Hi. His lab studies, in the most general sense, neuroglial interactions and dynamics in the CNS using many cool tools and imaging and many different preparations. Around the room, we have uh, Todd Troyer. Hello. I almost forgot about you guys, sorry. <laughs> I have Carlos Palladini. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. And uh, again, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So just one of the things in recent years uh, that your group has been working on are oligodendrocyte precursor cells, which are, I guess, largely being considered to constitute a fourth class of glia in the adult CNS. So why do we think of them as more than just a precursor? When, when does a precursor become its own class of glia? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's that's a multifaceted question. I think um, one of the things that's unusual about this population of precursors is that they, they persist throughout life. So a lot of progenitor pools uh, they only exist transiently during development. So the unusual aspect of these oligodendrocyte progenitors is that they remain abundant throughout life, and, and in addition, they're not restricted to these little, these niches, these small areas, these germinal zones, like around the ventricles, or there's this population of uh, progenitor cells in the hippocampus, which is important for production of new neurons. These oligodendrocyte progenitor pools are, are are present throughout the CNS, so they're uh, you know they're about equally abundant in the olfactory cortex as they are in the motor cortex and in the white matter. So um, very abundant population of cells. They they account for about five percent of all cells. So it's not like some small group of cells. By the fact that there's a large number of the cells and the fact that they are. Um, they're distributed throughout the CNS that really suggests that this is, you know, they're fundamentally distinct and they are part of the uh, adult nervous system, not something restricted to development. And uh, I think the second part of that is like, why should we consider them to be a distinct population? Really gets at like their physiology, what are their properties? And their properties are distinct. They don't uh, have the same features as astrocytes have, you know, they're not involved in taking up neurotransmitters, things like that, not important for regulating the blood-brain barrier. Um, and they, uh, they're distinct from, you know, they're distinct from all other glial cell types based on their physiology and genetics. So do they do more than just turn into oligodendrocytes? Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly do in the context of brain injury. So you can, uh, for example, if you monitor the behavior of these cells after you induce a focal injury to the brain, what you find is that these cells will migrate to the site of injury and they'll participate in the formation of what's known as a glial scar, for lack of a better term. It's basically a, a glial layer that walls off the, this necrotic or damaged tissue to sort of prevent that tissue from influencing the surrounding neurons and is also important for clearing debris, dead and dying cells and things like that. So these cells will migrate to that site of injury They'll participate in the formation of this glial scar, and that behavior has nothing to do with making oligodendrocytes. Those cells, you can track the fate of those cells and show that they will never become oligodendrocytes. They participate in this glial scarring, and then they are removed after the scar resolves. 
So in that extreme case, that's a, that's a function of the cells which is more related to CNS repair. In the naive brain, where you don't have traumatic injury, maybe you do over time, but let's just say that there is no traumatic injury to the brain, are they doing other things? And we think that they, they probably do. They might be involved in some broader sort of homeostatic functions in the CNS, like maintaining the extracellular matrix or something, something like that, maybe more similar to uh, the functions of microglia. Microglia you know, really important for the innate immune system to look for uh, dead and dying cells, infiltrating cells, things like that, infection. And perhaps there's some sort of job sharing between microglia and these cells. And they're each doing different roles in this process. And so we think that this is sort of a one possible role for these cells in the CNS, apart from uh, this role as serving as progenitors. So and, uh, it's from a long time ago, it's known that if the cells in some part of the brain die, there'll be a proliferation of glial cells in there. It's usually called gliosis or right. something. You can yep. see it really easily in the, in the old-fashioned initial uh, stain preparation or something like that. What are the, are they the glia that are, that you're seeing in gliosis? Right, that's a great point. Yes, absolutely. So they, you know, so this idea of reactive gliosis is common to traumatic injury, to neurodegeneration, all sorts of insults. It's one of the hallmarks of injury or infection in the brain. And most of that, you know, most of the analysis in gliosis has been to look at the behavior of astrocytes. And, um, and often people have assumed that astrocytes will become reactive, which they do. They change their morphology and their physiology in response to injury. And, and then people propose that they often pr proliferate. They undergo, you know, they, they expand their numbers and they you expand these reactive cells. But in most of those cases, if you look at which cells are responding the most, that is, which cells are dividing the most, it's actually the OPCs, these oligodendrocyte progenitor cells. And we, we um, had a, a study that we published a few years ago where we looked at the behavior of OPCs in an animal model with ALS. So this is a animal model where you have degeneration of motor neurons in the spinal cord. And that is a model that's associated with extreme gliosis in the spinal cord. And when we looked at the gliosis, we found that you know, if you looked at the cells that are proliferating, that are dividing, the OPCs were the ones that were dividing. You could almost not detect any division of the astrocytes. Astrocytes, if anything, tend to die or become reactive. But the proliferation phenomenon was really associated with the OPCs, and it increased like 20-fold in the context of this, the progression of disease in these mice. And the reason that they were proliferating was because the mature oligodendrocytes were dying. And so you see this kind of you know, effect where oligodendrocytes are dying, and the progenitor pool is being mobilized to produce new oligodendrocytes. So that's why you see a progressive increase in proliferation of the progenitor cells. Well, oligodendrocytes <clears throat> die just because there's no axons around there for them to myelinate, or will they hang around and just wait for a long time? I think it, it depends on the context. I mean, there, there are certainly examples where if you kill the neurons, the myelin will stick around for a while. Um, it, it does seem that in cases of neuro, neurodegenerative disease, which are caused by mutations in genes that are widely expressed. So many of these genes are not unique to neurons. 
you know, like superoxide dismutase, which is a cause of ALS, this is not a neuronal gene. And this is true for many neurodegenerative diseases. They, they arise from mutations, and then for whatever reason, neuro, different subsets of neurons have selective vulnerability. We don't understand what causes that, but it's very true that these, these proteins are widely expressed, and so there is pathology in other cells. And in fact, some of the neurodegeneration may be exacerbated by changes, pathological changes in the glia. And actually, and this, this is sort of gets the heart of the oligodendrocytes' interaction with the axon, right. anyway, because it has to decide which axons to myelinate, and the axons may have a say. And um, if the axon isn't there, then that interaction between the oligodendrocyte can't really happen. Maybe, can't happen, yeah. Maybe the oligodendrocyte's still there and it's still alive and may even be healthy, but right. it isn't going to be myelinated that myelinating the axon that isn't there. It could also be, and this is what we think is happening in ALS, where <clears throat> the expression of this mutant protein actually impairs the ability to regenerate these cells. And if, you, if, you, if you're not able to produce oligodendrocytes and you're not able to produce myelin, you actually have sort of less metabolic support that's provided to the axon. So myelin is not just uh, insulation. Oligodendrocytes that produce myelin also provide metabolic support to the axon. And if you produce oligodendrocytes that are not able to provide this metabolic support, or you impair the ability of the progenitor cells to differentiate and replace the, the dying oligodendrocytes, then it makes those neurons much more vulnerable. And we so should, do we know what, exactly yeah. what kind of metabolic support that, that is? Yeah, we think it's, um, I mean, so there was a series of papers that come at, came out um, a few years ago showing that uh, there's a particular lactate transporter, which is expressed by oligodendrocytes, known as MCT1. And this is thought to be involved in releasing lactate and delivering it to axons, and then neurons use lactate as an energy source. And if you look at mice that are heterozygous for this transporter, you'll see a progressive neurodegeneration phenotype, particularly in long projecting axons, um, suggesting that that particular transporter and the supply of lactate to the axon is critical yeah. for survival. So if, um, when oligodendrocytes myelinate axons, they usually are in very specific places and not in other places along the, the same single yeah. axon. So how does, does lactate then just diffuse throughout the axon, or is there something special about that section of the axon right. that requires this lactate? That's a great question. So this is, uh, so yeah, so they're in, in the cortex anyway, there's this, right. there's this sort of discontinuous myelination. So if you take a given axon, you'll find that it only has these small segments of myelin in many cases. I mean, there are some axons that are completely myelinated, mm -hmm. but many of them have show this discontinuous myelination where you have a little patch of myelin separated by large stretches of axon that are not myelinated. So I, this is an interesting idea. So like, well, if that axon, the bare axon, is exposed to the environment, then can't it just take up glucose or whatever? Uh, we just don't know. And in, in those cases, we don't know if if those, the production of lactate or release of lactate from those oligodendrocytes is somehow critical. That is, as you're suggesting, like maybe it enters the axon there and it diffuses throughout. But so I think people haven't done the right experiments, I think, to ask that question. Like, is it, are those 
So I think what you're getting at is maybe the most fundamental question, and that is, in the gray matter of the brain, the cortex, what is the purpose of myelination? Yeah, because even, even, even your idea that you mentioned about insulation doesn't seem to bear right. out if most of it is not, right. not you, actually myelinated. So why right. is that myelinating in that specific part of the axon? Exactly. Like what, what, what advantage does <laughs> that little bit of myelin provide for conduction velocity or metabolic support or maybe it prevents branching of the axon in that location? These are all sort of ideas, but there, there hasn't been any, I think, real experimental evidence one way or the other. I think because, for example, we don't have great ways of demyelinating specific subsets of neurons or changing the pattern of myelination in known ways. And all these kind of things that you would love to do, it's, we don't really have but the tools so, to do yet. But the, the really cool thing about um, what you showed in your study with oligodendrocytes was that um, this myelination, this discontinuous myelination, as you call it, is not random. So it's, it's very specific so that when you remove myelination and allow recovery, it seems like the myelination happens at almost at exactly the same spots. That's right. The same sections of axon have the, the same mile amount of myelination. So there, it would suggest something, that, that something is important. That pattern must be yeah. important for something, right? Yep. Otherwise, why would a, the neuron and the oligodendrocyte have this interaction yep. to ensure that that chunk of axon is actually myelinated and not some other part, right? right? So maybe it's the fact that some other parts of the axon should not be myelinated, right? So that they can branch out and form new, yep. new connections. I don't know. So one thing, I mean, I, I uh, we, we just don't know. But um, one thing I think it might be interesting to consider is whether or not we're looking at it at sort of like I think two too high magnification, if you will, and that is we're considering myelin on the scale of an individual cell. But imagine, I mean, the circuit, you know, the cortex is made up of circuits, right? So what if myelination, the importance of myelination is really felt at the circuit level, not at the individual axon level? Mm -hmm. And imagine you had a circuit that was designed to accomplish something. It's doing calculation, it's processing information, to achieve some outcome. And you had the ability to slightly, to basically tune it like a musical instrument and slightly change the conduction velocities or the, the pattern of information flow. And you could use myelin to do this. So you imagine you have a circuit and you just, you could sprinkle you know, myelin around, slowly change the velocity and change, you're basically tuning the circuit to accomplish something. This is, I think, um, an idea that's worth pursuing that is that it's basically felt at the circuit level and it's using it to modify the entire circuit but any one single axon connection it may be very difficult to see that okay this is changing conduction velocity to slow it down by a few microseconds or something and speed it up I think that, that that would be difficult to achieve so we're right now we're kind of focusing at the circuit level and trying to develop strategies that would allow us to remove myelin from a group of neurons, this kind of thing, and then ask, how, what does this do to the, the capacity of this circuit in the cortex? I mean, so, it's felt at the circuit level, but it's definitely yeah. controlled at the subcellular level. Yes. So something is still... So you would need some feedback mechanism, yeah. right? So yeah. if you were going to create the system where you used myelin for this purpose, yeah. then that circuit needs to know what it's doing. It's trying to achieve some optimum, and then that 
that has to feed back on controlling mm -hmm. the pattern and controlling, yes. So, I mean, one of the things that we know, um, there are a number of things that we know influence myelination. So, as I mentioned, sort of axon diameter. So, if the cell is larger, if the axon is larger, it's more likely to be myelinated. We know that activity itself, so mm -hmm. action potential production, will influence the pattern of myelination. We don't know exactly what's being released by the neuron or if the action potentials are actually controlling the expression of permissive factors or things like that, which would allow myelination to occur. We don't really understand the molecular basis of this, but we know that activity itself is a profound regulator. So there are lots of things. I was talking to students about like a hierarchy. There's like, imagine 12 different things that influence whether or not myelination is going to occur. And that all of these things kind of combine together for the ultimate output. And one can influence different things, like if you dramatically increase activity or you use activity that's just the right pattern, then you might overcome other inhibitory cues to allow myelination to occur. So you can imagine how you create a framework where it's basically non-permissive. There's hardly any, you know, it's non-permissive, and then you tweak certain things to allow, uh, allow those cells to actually uh, engage and differentiate. This seems like it's almost possible. I don't know if it's really possible. Is that um, so? You've shown that that uh, when they regrow, they regrow presumably on the same axons with the same nodes in the same place at least right. some of the time. So that means that the neurons are pretty stable enough that you can stably record them and not. I don't know if you could get a culture thing where you can record enough electrical activity and then kill a bunch of oligodendrocytes and see differences in patterns and have remyelination happen and see whether you recover or even record particular properties of individual axons that you see that have been myelated or not myelinated to measure those things. I don't know if that's conceivable or uh, close to conceivable or not. I mean, it seems like you could put potentially in a small network yeah. test those kinds of that things. That would be ideal. I would say that the, you know, unfortunately there's not great in vitro models for myelination. It's hard to get myelination to occur in vitro actually. You can uh -huh. get wrapping, but it's hard to form real myelin, compact myelin. Um, and what, happen, what tends to happen in a dish is when you differentiate oligos, they tend to die. I see. They certainly will do this when they're <laughs> isolated. If they're provided with a substrate like neurons, they survive better, but it's hard to, at least right now, recapitulate the, the richness that you mm -hmm. see in the cortex that, you know, try to match this, this discontinuous myelination pattern, things like that. Things tend to go to more complete myelination, so on. So. Yeah, about any of the, I agree. How about the organoids, the things that yeah, are starting maybe. to be? Maybe if you get something that's closer in a yeah. 3D matrix that's that starts to get some density yeah. and and really form you know some extracellular matrix, hmm. that maybe it'll happen. Yeah, I mean the it in in that context, I think it's the organoids are really exciting from the standpoint of studying human oligodendrocytes. It's been very difficult to make oligodendrocytes from human cells, it's, it's a, oligodendrocytes are the last cells to be produced during development. So you know, neural progenitor cells, they give rise to neurons first, and then they give rise to astrocytes next, and then finally they give rise to OPCs. 
and that's the last thing. And then if you take um, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells and force them to become oligodendrocytes, this is like takes months and months and months. And the organoids, most of the organoids don't actually reach a state where you would be able to study oligodendrocytes yet, actually, because it's such a really slow process in human cells. But maybe for mouse cells, you might be able to push them that far. So yeah, some reduced system would be fantastic, for sure. So your um, data on the discontinuous myelination is through a sort of superficial skull um, a 2P uh, imaging study, right? Yeah. So you're looking at layer one, which is... Layer one to two, three. Yeah, you can go down about 800 microns or so, something like that, but you can't really get down into white matter. But you, so the organization that you see of the oligodendrocytes uh, is recapitulated as far down as you can see. Is there data like EM data showing, for example, in layers two through six that you would have the same type of discontinuous? Sure, a lot of these things have been seen. I mean, in some yeah. Golgi preparations, you can see whether axons are myelinated or not. And it's easy to see all over the brain that fine axons are discontinuously uh, myelinated. And, you, and I've seen it in electron micrographs that you just happen to to get where you see a, a node around VA that's myelinated on one side and not on the other. So these kinds of observations have been around and just been in a, you know, a WTF kind of state for <laughs> yeah, like forever. Exactly. forever. Yeah, like this you know? weird, like, okay, and, we have no basis for people, understanding. People note these, noted these yeah. things in their observations, but didn't know what to make of them. So you don't see any orientation difference. I thought I remembered seeing a difference between the I'm, way the right, cells proliferate between layer one versus the deeper layers. Not so much from proliferation, but certainly the or, like well, the, the oligos match, yeah. the orientation of the oligos matches like what, what the orientation of the axons is. So on the surface of the brain, they have these tangentially projecting fibers, and so the oligodendrocytes have their processes aligned to that. The, as you go deeper into the cortex, you have more like ascending fibers, and so of course they're matters, oriented yeah. this way. Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing imaging, it's nice at the surface of the brain because you see these flat cells and you can see all of the you know processes like in a plane but as you go deeper you cut through optically you know the section and then you just see little points of light and then your, your resolution is less in the z plane and so it gets to be more difficult but there's more myelin you know, as you go deep into the cortex there's more and more oligodendrocytes there's more and more myelin and um, it's kind of invisible to our detection right now you know we don't we don't really know that much about what's going on there in terms of the dynamics. So you couldn't just, like, if you wanted to get down to white matter, say like the callosum or yeah. something like that, just scoop out some of the yeah. cortex. You could just, do that. Just for some you can see my expression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't hurt I, I mean, the problem is that, you know, of course, the colossal fibers are you know, formed by the, the axons of the cells that you're scooping out. So, yeah. of course, if you want to study dynamics, you don't want to, you want to first do no damage. Right? In the so cortex, the blood comes from the top. That's one of the first <laughs> yeah, things that right. you learn about the cortex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah it, this is, I mean, so what, what are the approaches? I think you're absolutely right. Is it would be great to be able to study in all brain regions and, and in particular to look at what's happening in white matter, which just seems to be fundamentally distinct. Yeah. Um, but the ability to resolve at these deep layers is impaired because of the high scattering nature of the tissue. 
So there are a couple approaches that are being developed. Like one is to use fluorophores that are excited by longer wavelengths of light. Mm -hmm. So these things are being developed like IR fluorescent proteins. Yeah. And as you go to longer wavelengths, it's less subject to scattering. So the you resolution get, also you goes down. It goes down, yeah. but you're still talking about it's still within, you yeah. know, you can still resolve structures, subcellular structure. So that probably will provide some advantage. And the other is to go to, uh, like, again, using longer wavelengths of light, but going to, like, three-photon imaging. Oh, always more photons. <laughs> it's always better. <laughs> so three-photon imaging, you know, it's, it's basically three times the wavelength now of light. So it's longer wavelength, again, less subject to uh, scattering. But, but actually getting lasers that will produce that kind of pulsed infrared lighter. Right now, they're very expensive and things like that. So, and having the right objectives and all this kind of stuff is having the right detectors, which will detect light emitted in that. You know, so all these kind of things are, the technology is not something that's widely been adopted. It's been, it's been shown uh, that it can provide a benefit. There's also things like uh, people are using adaptive optics now, they call it, you know, because in highly scattering media, um, you know, this is a lot of, the adaptive optics are used a lot in astronomy because, you know, the photons are passing through the atmosphere and that will scatter things. So you can use similar um, optical tricks to compensate for the nature of the media that the photons are passing through. So you can use tricks that were developed in astronomy to improve your ability to resolve um, in the tissue, but you know, again, this is like most of this this work is being done in engineering labs, physics labs, showing yeah. that it's possible. It does improve things, but you know, getting a microscope off the shelf, or you know, getting it to a level where a biologist who doesn't have you know training in physics can use it. I think we're just not there yet. But this is the kind of thing where there's clearly ways that we could improve imaging in deeper. Why don't go to a place where the what matters on the surface? And what about the spinal cord? Like spinal cord? Yeah. yeah. So the problem with the spinal cord, you definitely can image there in the dorsal column. Um, the spinal cord is uh, difficult to work with. I mean, the nice thing about going into the cortex is that you, you know, make a yeah, the skull, there. you can do a window. People have done windows in the spinal cord. We've experimented a little bit with this. One of the problems is that the, the spinal cord is in a canal and it, it moves around a lot. It's very, you know, like any kind of movement, the like breathing, everything will move the spinal cord and that uh, decreases your resolution just because it's, you know, moving around a lot. The other is that it seems like, you know, because it's moving around here, that it, you know, it's normally encased. And if you make a window in our hands, like it sort of it gets, there's like an abrasion that happens over time. So we see a lot of gliosis yeah. right around the window site, which is again, like first do no damage, right? Do minimal damage. We always see a lot of damage associated with this. So then kind of worried that you're studying a tissue that's highly inflamed and have lots of reactive glia so I, I think the technology or the, you know, the methodology hasn't uh, really been worked out to allow imaging in, in spinal cord yet. There's some people that are doing it. I think it's you know, for certain questions, regeneration and things like that. But in our hands, we always see a lot of like reactive gliosis when we do these things. So There's such a contrast. Looking in the white matter, there 
there are accents that are just not myelinated anywhere. Right. And then ones that are myelinated everywhere. And then ones that have a lot of myelin, ones that have just a little bit of myelin. And all that is basically ordered by size. And the, uh, and so people just say something like, well, it's size. But that's not really answering the question because how would the oligodendrocyte even know the Accent size. Does it measure the diameter of the accent? The number of times it wraps. I mean, you can imagine how, like, you know, as a deal with like curvature, something like that. So the ability of the cell to form a process and wrap around something could be related to the curvature, and then that that sort of determines the probability. But you know, I can I tell you, like all like this knowledge of the of myelination, myelination patterns stuff, largely comes from the spinal cord or the peripheral nervous system. And in the cortex, it seems like all these rules are broken. <laughs> you know, so you have axon and axon that is exactly the same diameter. And it's myelinated in one spot and not another. So clearly, it can't be just diameter. Right. And you'll have an axon that's larger on one side that's unmyelinated, and a thinner axon right next to it, which is myelinated. So again, there, it's more exceptions than it is the rule. There, so it seems like again gets back to this kind of like there's this hierarchy of things that are going on, not to say that diameter doesn't matter, but it's one of multiple factors that are influencing whether or not myelination happens. So I don't know if this is like dogma from back in the old days and has been completely uh, debunked at this point, but I remember learning about this and neurons were sort of the central kings of this of the scene and they had these sort of little individual oligodendrocytes that, that are designated to just them. Is there any evidence that, that you have oligodendrocytes wrapping multiple neurons? That There is, yeah? That's what happens in the brain, yeah. Your story was from the peripheral nervous system. Yes, Schwann ah. cells. Schwann cells is one-to-one. One. Yeah, Schwann cells is one-to-one, one. yeah. <laughs> and oligodendrocytes is like one-to-fifty, something like that. And, hmm. and most of these, and the not only, but most of these are unique, like different axons, although you know, with the imaging, we can see that one oligodendrocyte will form like doublet sheaths, like two sheaths on one axon, something like that. So that can happen. So cool. is so the structures that you see that are pulling together neurons are they um, systematic, or is, it, is there some sort of uh, architecture that is repeating, or yeah. it's? Is there any so, method to the madness? So do we even know? Do we even know? Like, if this oligodendrocyte and she's these thirty axons, are they from the same cell type? Yeah. Or are they from thirty different cell yeah. types? No, that's exactly. I mean, this is what a, a student lab is working on right now to really define the myelination patterns along different types of neurons in the brain. It's amazing that we don't know this, but of course it's not so trivial. Now we have lots of genetic tools for labeling certain subsets of neurons. So that's what we're doing using. Uh, genetic approaches to express like a red fluorescent protein in one particular like a parvalbumin interneuron and then we have mice or we have a green fluorescent protein in the oligodendrocytes combine them in the same animal and so then we can look you know at the myelination pattern just along those um, those axons of those neurons and yeah I think that all has to be that's all the groundwork you know figuring mm -hmm. out what the normal pattern is and then you can ask higher order questions like, well, when do these patterns develop? Are they plastic only on one cell type for another cell type? You know, maybe uh, the myelination pattern on one cell type is totally fixed 
versus another one, it's always being reorganized. Or when you add new oligodendrocytes, you're always adding them to this one type of neuron, the axons of those neurons. Or uh, you know, when you have remyelination happen, are there different probabilities for replacement? Maybe, maybe all the parvalbumin in the neurons get remyelinated first. And then maybe eventually you get remyelination of these others. So we just know nothing about any of this. What about the possibility that axons could communicate to each other exactly. by way of their common oligodendrocytes? Exactly. That's what I was thinking. Because there are these, right, at the perinode, there are these like yeah. collections of, of membrane proteins, that some of which might yeah. be transporters, and there might be mm -hmm. direct communication between them. And then, tethering. And uh, maybe they could all be. Oh, it's a great, I mean, this is a great idea. So one of the things that we do know about oligodendrocytes is they're, they're part of what's called the panglial syncytium. So certain cell types in the brain can be connected to each other through gap junctions. And normally we think about gap junctions like astrocytes are clearly, you know, very highly coupled to one another, but astrocytes are also coupled to oligodendrocytes. So now you have a whole network of like oligos and astrocytes that are all coupled to each other that have the potential, as you say, to communicate with one another, you know, in ways that you know we don't, we don't know. Yeah. Well, one the of the gleam. one of the things that people are quite excited about this idea for is that maybe um, under pathological conditions that the glial syncytium is actually um, participating in propagation of disease. So we know in many neurodegenerative diseases that it begins with a certain focus. And then that propagates outward from there to, you know, to influence other brain regions, whatever, if you're talking about the brain. Um, so it's possible that maybe some of this, you know, diffusion of mutant proteins, prion-like proteins and things could be happening through the glial syncytium. And that actually is what allows, you know, this enlargement of areas and disease. So there could be pathways, basically, Glial yeah. here can communicate with ones there by yes. interurban railway, but these can't. They'd have to get on, go the roundabout way. Right. That would. Look. So, how much is the, does that suspicion like follow boundaries, like cytoarchitectural boundaries between areas and stuff like that? Yeah. Do, you, do, you, do, do they, they even care? Do they care? That's the question. Is it just yeah. a, bunch of, a lump of uh, brain, or is it actually when it's formed, it's formed in a specific area away? Or I think there there is some evidence that there it's not purely random. That is, if you, for example, you can um, you can test the coupling between cells. If you inject dye that will go through the gap junctions, and you can do this, in, like let's say in an astrocyte in this region of the cortex, and you can find that, well, on average, that dye diffuses to five cells. And if you do that in another part of the brain, you might find 50 cells. But clearly, there are differences in the extent of coupling between brain regions, and, and there's even, I think, evidence that, that there are certain populations of astrocytes that are coupled to each other highly. And you can find other astrocytes in the same region that are not as coupled to those cells. So, you know, there's there's the potential for a lot of uh, modulation of this. So, gap junction proteins or phosphoproteins they can be phosphorylated, which will change their conduction. You can have a lot of um, create a lot of diverse intercellular junctions, you know, channels because the gap junctions can um, match with different different proteins. You know, like so you have one type of gap junction forming a channel with another type of gap junction, which creates a channel that has unique properties. And so you can create a lot of diverse types of channels by mating the gap junctions to each other, homophilically or heterophilically. Again, there's just 
We don't know anything about what regulates that. We don't really know, frankly, we don't know that much about what gap junctions are doing, to be totally honest. I mean, they, they seem to be really important for, you know, for lack of a better term, allowing homeostasis. So it's like uh, allowing things like energy, metabolism to be maintained, allowing dissipation of ion gradients and things like that in the brain. But it's kind of like, it's hard to put your finger on you know, what's the critical experiment which showed this? And part of the problem is that we don't have, we don't have good um, pharmacological tools which will block gap junctions selectively. So it's just, they're horrible compounds like the octanols and these, these, these things that are, which are nonspecific. And then the problem is that if you genetically delete gap junctions, it can cause alterations in the expression of like hundreds of proteins in the cell because it seemed to be really important for you know, synchronizing gene expression, doing things like that. So the cells kind of do a little bit of a freak out if you uncouple them. And so then, okay, you don't, you don't have good drugs and you don't have genetics. So how, you know, it's just been very difficult to get a clear picture of what this coupling is being used for. And particularly like this coupling, like what, why are astrocytes coupling to oligos, for example? What are they using that for? One of the remarkable things you see in the images is if you're used to looking at slices of the brain that are stained for neurons, you really see these nuclei. They stand out and they're separated from each other, not everywhere as well as they are some places. But for example, in the thalamus, you just really can clearly see that it's right. composed of nuclei. If you look at the sections like yours that are stained for the oligo precursors, you don't see it. It's like, it's just a a diffuse feeling. That's also true yeah. for microglia, too. Yeah. But I, I've only looked a little bit at section stain for astrocytes, but I think that you can still see nuclear boundaries in the astrocyte stained preparation. Is that not right? Well, I mean, certainly if you were, if you were to look at, for example, if you were to look at all the membrane of astrocytes, the entire brain would be green. That's right. You know, that they, wouldn't they be very fill, helpful at all. They fill the entire available space. Yeah. Um, but whether the cell bodies are clustered in anything, I mean, they, there's not a strong there's not strong evidence of nuclei again because astrocytes basically have to be everywhere. So there's no like, oh hey, we clustered them over here, and then there's none over there. So there's not strong evidence for that kind of thing, other than maybe I'm in the, the cerebellum. By this, actually, I wouldn't want to have to learn a whole parallel. Neuroanatomy. Gleoanatomy. Gleoanatomy. But does it even matter the new where Atlas the cell bodies that. are? Because there, there are still these sort of micro domains that are kind of exactly. self-regulating yeah. little local regions. Right. I kind of view um, astrocytes like moss. You know, it's yeah. like it's not. I, I just don't think that for them, maybe the the individual really matters much because they're. They're all, they're part of a colonial organism, it's basically. Borg. It's like, but there are studies that show yeah. clear distinctions among them, even within a certain nucleus. So Alfonso Araque has that yes. study where he uh, manipulates um, astrocytes associated with D1 receptor expressing spiny projection neurons versus D2 ones and finds that those are two completely different populations right. and they, have, they affect each population of neurons differently as well. So there is some separation of duties, right? Specification. Yeah. I think that's really, I mean, this is where, this is the sweet spot of science right now because 
it seems like everybody is doing single cell RNA profiling. You know, because you can do this, you know, this kind of like 10x, this single cell isolation and look at it, the complement of genes that are expressed. And then they're using that to define functionally distinct pools of cells. And so the, they're doing this for astrocytes. And it's definitely true. I mean, you mm. like cells in this, astrocytes in this region are different from astrocytes in this region. And so, like, I'm sure that's true too, that they are going to be specified and that there's some. You know, unique aspects of astrocytes in this region. I guess from the standpoint of like the MOS part of it, it just means that you know, there's some aspect of the community which is important too. Like yeah. you can imagine that they're they are doing multiple things. One of which is homeostasis, and that's in, that's where this syncytium comes in. And then other parts that are more maybe neuromodulatory uh, in character, maybe really specialized for certain regions. And the one example that I know. Uh, that has been shown recently was from David Roich's lab where they, they, they profiled astrocytes in the spinal cord and found that there were a subset of astrocytes in one region of the spinal cord which expressed a particular like guidance factor for neurons. And those astrocytes were really important for you know sort of defining the projection pattern of a subset of neurons. So that's clear specification of astrocytes within a region that had an important uh, uh, Consequence for development, but whether you know there are fifty different kinds of astrocytes that are important for different functions, like we don't know this yet. Yeah, yeah. the striatal one is especially puzzling because the D one and T two neurons are all intermixed. Yeah, there's no so th that, that differentiation of astrocytes can't be based on space. It's not, and yeah. it's got to be based on some kind of special connection between the astrocyte and the neuron at some submicroscopic. Yeah. Scale. It's reasonable to think that, like, you know, so astrocytes wrap around synapses and things like that. You can imagine that, well, if it's wrapping around this kind of synapse, as this complement of proteins, this complement of signaling, yes. versus if it's wrapping around. But we normally think of astrocytes as tiling the tissue, too. Yeah. And so the, the astrocytes that are going to wrap around this synapse have a synapse right next to it, one micron away, that's the other kind. Yes, yeah. And how's that other astrocyte going to get in there to wrap around that other kind of synapse? And the, and, to, and the other astrocyte has to make way for it also, not, not only yeah, that. Yeah, they'd right? have to be, the astrocytes would have to be intermixed too, and yeah. usually we say they're not, but... There's not but, much overlap, I mean, between individuals. Yeah. So the people, so there's, if you look in um, Josh Sainz's Brainbow uh, paper in Nature, I think, um, it, you know, where they had, they forced astrocytes that were neighboring one another to express different fluorescent proteins. And this was also done... Um, by injecting astrocytes with different fluorescent dyes and looking, and there's a very little overlap between individuals, very little intercalation, if you will. So that would suggest that you know each astrocyte is responsible for some volume mm -hmm. of the. So complex. I think that differentiation has to be on the basis of some receptor specificity, yeah. and the astrocytes are releasing things that travel for some distance and act on specifically on D1 versus D2. Or it could be just that in the striatum, this, this respect for boundaries is not there. It's uh, possible. So because it, yes, that's did they, right. did they look at that in the, in the striatum? I don't remember in that paper. Um, there have been reports of like that you know, there's some regions have more intercalation, but it, again, yeah. it's like you never see them like 
like this. I mean, it may yeah. be it may be like a little bit more like this, but overall, they seem to respect their boundaries for the most part. So that would suggest that specialization is on the level of like single synapses or something. Like right. There's, yeah. And you know, if you look at there are these beautiful studies that were done using high voltage electron microscopy. You know, where by, they could yeah, uh, tilt the tissue. Or... Yeah. And they could reconstruct all of this tortuous, you know, these processes of astrocytes, and it's just incredibly complex, you know. And they're they're often, you know, like these little domains of astrocytes are restricted in terms of their ability to communicate with the rest of the cell because you can have an elaboration of the astrocyte that's connected back to the main process by only a thin little cytoplasmic bridge which is like, it's almost like a dendritic spine, you know, there's a biochemical isolation of this compartment here. So it could be that astrocytes are made up of, you know, a large number of somewhat functionally distinct domains. Yeah. Wild. I wanted to ask you about theory and how much of that is being engaged, but we don't have time, so you'll have to come back. <laughs> That's good, because I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I Thank you for joining us. It's been really great to have you. Thank Thanks you, for Dwight having Burgles. me. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.